0: How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin?
1: Here on the Future Studying Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Katie. And I'm Jade. And this is Future Steady. Hey, hey, thanks for tuning in. Today when I was shopping for bulk foods, mostly chocolate-coated nuts of various persuasions, I got talking to the store assistant. She was one of those effervescent older women with silver hair and a sparkle in her eye. And as we took our conversation beyond polite inquiries and into the realm of relaxed chatter, she told me she was meant to get married in Sydney last Saturday. I obviously needed to know more and listened in as she recounted how her partner had, out of the blue on a multi-day hiking trip while they were both covered in March fly bites and blisters, got down on one knee and asked her to be his wife. They'd already been together 13 years, Co raised her children and never contemplated getting hitched. But these two retirement aged folks with their shared passion for nature and steady love had decided to make it official after all that time. Of course, COVID crashed the party. And as she told me this with watery eyes and a sigh, it made me think of all those people, probably you or folks you know, who've had a real hard time of it lately. From weddings to funerals to reunions to whole livelihoods, not much has escaped this pandemic unscathed. And as our borders close and cities lock down and many of us face loneliness and uncertainty, we here at Future Setting just wanted to acknowledge the shittiness and send some kind of invisible and etheric podcast love your way. We really hope you're hanging in there and we're thinking of you. Today's guest is like plantain salve on a nasty scrape, a soothing and healing soul with a heck of a way with words Annie Racer Rowland co-authored two of our most treasured books, The Weed Forager's Handbook and The Art of Frugal Hedonism, and she has a third on the way. Annie and I covered a lot of ground, from hitchhiking adventures and planting yourself in new places, to chronic health conditions, choosing life over career, and controversial acts in the face of climate change. This is a beautiful conversation. We say that every time, but it truly is. And hey, thank you so much to our Buy Me A Coffee sponsors for this last little while. You are the cheer people who keep us going and the cream in our cup of tea. Thank you to Farm Off The Freeway, Kim Cronin, Christina, Suzanne Pickles, Jenny at Milk, Bread, Eggs, Honey, Ange Cardi, and Melissa for your generosity. If you'd like to contribute to the show and help us pay our monthly hosting fees and sanity bills, you can head to buymeacoffee.com slash futuresteady. And now, we hope you enjoy the dulcet and dreamy and goddamn mind-blowing tones of Annie Racer Rowland. Catch you later. <laughs> so, I feel like you're a little bit of an enigma because you don't have your life plastered all over the World Wide Web. <laughs> I also don't know that much about you besides you wrote two of my most cherished books and you seem like a totally radical human being. So, Annie, could you paint a little bit of a picture or tell us about your backstory?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, and I'm very glad that you haven't been able to discover my life plastered over the World Wide Web. Um, <laughs> nicely done. It's done. It's not really intentional. It's just the fact that I have very little interest in computers beyond watching bad British comedies on them and writing books on them so I don't use them for anything else <laughs> and and checking the weather compulsively so I know how to spend my week. Um <laughs> Um, I grew up as a half and only child and half in a household with lots of half and stepbrothers and sisters so I think I had the best of both worlds in having to become very independent and sort of daydreamy and having to get on with other people a lot in a big noisy household um So, yeah, the single-parent household was my mum's household and I had to learn how to be really responsible and because she was at work, how to help make sure that dinner was on the table and how to pack my own lunches and help with the cleaning. And She was fabulous at teaching me how to budget from a really early age and how to clean things and cook things and be a kind of helpful human being around the house rather than a tax on her because she had to as a single mum. But then, yeah, I had that that really social household in my dad's household where there was, like, five kids and lots of people. Um, and that did seem to turn me into a fairly frugal human being pretty early on. Even as a teenager when I was really punky, um, I managed to save money doing the – shitty hospitality jobs that I would do where everyone else would just blow their pay and it was always because I had that desire to be able to do more amazing things with my money later so it was like yes I would I would do the thing right now but I was the person always sneaking the hip flask in (laughs) instead of buying all the drinks at the pub (laughs) And I wouldn't tend to just blow all my money on cigarettes and kebabs in between because I was like, yeah, but I want to go hitchhike through South America. Um, And, yes, somehow I had had that idea that even though restraint was really unfashionable in my social circles, like it was just all about spend all your pay as soon as you get it, I was really clear that it felt worthwhile to – be able to do more amazing things later and I'd also worked out that you could do amazing things now that didn't involve blowing all your pay. So I did spend a lot of my youth of doing epic hitchhiking journeys around Australia and having heaps of adventures that way. Um, and also making art um, is a pretty good training for being a both frugal and a hedonist. Um, for example, I worked at a recycling factory when I was maybe 17 to 18 when I'd first moved out of home and I would just bring home all the craziest things from the recycling factory and wrap them up as presents for my housemates like odd plastic figurines or liqueur bottles in the shape of gigantic three master ships or I'd bring home everything I could find in one shade of blue and wear it and use those things for one week and try and not use any other objects (laughs) except for the blue objects. So, yeah, a lot of stuff just sort of teach me about different ways of having fun and not spending money.
1: Mm -hmm. And when you um, hitchhiked around the country, and did, did you do that in other countries as well? Not so
0: much in other countries, mostly I think, yeah, my other hitchhiking countries would be mostly New Zealand and a little bit in Eastern Europe when I went there about 10 years ago, a bit in Central America. I mean, you know, in lots of developing countries, which is where most of my travel has been it's not really hitchhiking, it's you flag someone down and then you give them some money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's not really an option so much.
1: Yeah, no, I'm intrigued because I have friends who are really into hitchhiking and they always say we have such a skewed perception of, of danger and of humanity's, um, you know, evils and then a lack of faith in our in our grace and our generosity. Did you find that people were on the whole pretty generous and not serial killer-esque well yeah
0: I mean I'm here so I didn't get serial killed um, <laughs> <laughs> um yes I found that there was a, there's a perverse thing where so many people that picked you up would say I'm only picking you up so one of the bad people doesn't pick you up I wouldn't usually pick up a hitchhiker but I'm just worried and I don't want one of the bad people to pick you up um so you would have nice person after nice person after nice person after nice person who is saving you from all the evil people that they perceive to be out there. Um, and I found it an amazing way to get around. It's, I mean, it's a shit often. It's, you can end up standing by 45-degree roads in clouds of dust for five hours straight running out of water gradually. But it doesn't happen that often if you do it well. And people want to tell you their life stories because they're sort of in this bubble with someone they know they're never going to see again the number of rides that I would have gotten where you have people where it was clear that someone had picked you up because they really needed to talk to someone about some bad stuff that was happening in their lives like people who'd picked you up because they had literally just left their partner that morning and were driving away from that and wanted to tell you about it or that someone's you know brother had just gotten cancer or and that they wanted to tell you about it um you're sort of this amazing blank slate for them to dump their stuff onto safely and that was really interesting plus you get people who hitchhiked a lot when they were young often and have got really good stories to tell you from that and they'll tell you about what the country what the place was like when they were hitchhiking or you also get lots of farmers um, which because I'm pretty interested in how landscapes work and how humans interact with them that you get to ask them all the questions that they usually really like answering about when it rains there and what happens then and how much that river swells by after a big rain event and what they grow in the between crops if they're doing a fallow a fallow planting or yeah, um, really really just dense, nutritious information <laughs> in terms of if you're comparing it to taking a bus somewhere or driving somewhere.
1: Yeah, but I think that's your your love of the story and also your attention to those stories and these beautiful details that others might see as just banal or um, humdrum or they're somehow screened out in the, you know, Staring out the window and feeling bored. You're obviously paying attention here in these situations. Is Definitely. that a, is that a practice that you you're conscious of?
0: Yeah, it is. And it's I mean, I can say that so immediately because there's been times in our life where I feel where I felt at risk of it slipping away. And I remember a phase I went through as a late teenager, perhaps, where I actually got scared because I felt like I wasn't seeing things properly anymore. And I think it was, I was actually identifying the point in my life where you're in your monkey mind is getting busy enough and monkeying around enough that you're not paying very constant attention to the incoming of your eyeballs and, I I kept trying to like physically hold my eyes open because I wanted to force them to, to go back to working how they were working before, where I felt like they were just drinking everything in. And I think it was a a strange sort of internal recognition of, Oh, my brain is more occupied with the whirring of my brain now than with what's around me. And I, I was so desperate to stop that. And it is something that I have an awareness of in all sorts of, phases of life as an adult where I start to realise that I'm too caught up in my own mind and I'm not paying attention to the world and that way unhappiness leads.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I feel like it's such a common affliction, I guess, that a lot of adults would um, put their hand up and admit to. Yeah why do, why do you think we've become a little more flat and, and unseeing and boring for want of a better word?
0: I don't know if it's blurring and unseeing. I think it is just preoccupied is we develop narratives that are very compelling that are run through our minds that we feel compelled to pay a lot of attention to, whether they be helpful ones or unhelpful ones, about what's happening with me socially, what's happening with how successful I'm being in life, what's happening with my health problems, what's happening with politics, what's – and. We're really story addicted creatures and we get addicted to running those stories in our minds and updating the narratives on them at a like second to second level so that it's really hard to stop paying attention to them. And I think we're at more risk of that when we live in cultures where the, the stories we're seeing minute to minute with our eyeballs aren't as commanding. Because say you live in a big city, you don't know what half the stories that you're witnessing are on a daily basis. It's all just a bunch of random stuff that doesn't mean that much to you. (laughs) Whereas you live perhaps in a smaller community or in a landscape that you know really well, then as you're walking around and you're looking at stuff, all the stories you're seeing have meanings to you because you know who that dog is and what it does or you know what kind of plant that is and what it's busy doing. So there's, there's better competition for your attention coming from the external sources. There's, there's more storied competition from the external sources, whereas, yeah, in a big city it's just like, oh, look at all this random shit happening. I'm just going to revert to going on and going back into what's happening in my brain.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is this a, a scale and a, a place Situation, you know, we're living in these huge cities and with so many connections, and such a, you know, if we were, um, well, I mean, we are animals, but if we were wandering our territory, it would just be huge. I know that cats go a fair way when they tag them, but I feel like a human territory can just be so massive. And does this mean that we compromise on that embeddedness in our place and these beautiful relationships and observations that spring up only through repetition and only through that deep, that rootedness?
0: Yeah, I think totally. And it it does really feel like a loss. There's a word, I think it's solastalgia. I don't know if you've heard it. No. No, it's a, it's a I hope I've got that right. Um, it's a word that got coined for the nostalgia for where you are,
1: mm.
0: which is sort of a, from, as I recall it, the coining of it was a response to having your, landscape your home landscape change so fast that you're missing it even while you're still there and I think that when you have a society that updates itself so constantly and is responding to environmental change and social change and technological change and you know the vacant block that you used to always play in gets developed as soon as you know the next generation has come along so it's not like you can then go with kids you know and say this is where I used to play when I was a kid because you can guarantee that vacant block will have gone or you know the outskirts of town where that used to be the whole agricultural zone where all the market gardens were they're all, all become suburbs so it's not like you can ever get to know the things that are part of your place because they change so quickly um and I think that really feels like an impoverishment to me it's it starts to become pointless to know anything too well because you know it's only going to change, and that's a real loss of context and meaning and
1: richness. So nostalgia—that's um, a beautiful word to add to the repertoire—and I feel that, I feel that I felt it. <laughs> so definitely. Oh yeah, I really feel like I feel it. And you've just undertaken a pretty monumental move. How are you going about? planting yourself in a new context?
0: Uh, Yeah, um, planting is a good word um, because I am really noticing that I hate not knowing what all the plants around are. Um, So I'm trying to swat up on that a little bit is learn what plant species are around me and what they do. Not doing very well so far, I've got to say. Um, And... The, the bird and animal species as well just to again feel like yeah for me that's the that's the best way to feel rooted I also like to be able to translate what the weather forecast means in terms of what the actual weather is going to do and that might sound uh, nerdy but it's like I really like to know the rhythms of the weather in the place so you can If you see it's a foggy morning, you know that that's going to have burnt off by 10 a.m. at this time of year because that's where all your sensory pleasure in life comes from, like, you know, that expectation that you can go out walking at 8 and feel that air nipping against your cheeks but you know that it's okay to put up with that because it will – fog will burn off within an hour's time and as, as your blood warms up the air will warm up too and that's going to be pleasurable um or that when a storm comes in it's going to always be strong heavy showers with heaps of thunder and that's going to be nice for being snugly inside in or that it's going to be the right kind of storm for going out walking in if you're feeling a bit dramatic and want to get all washed clean and um yeah I really like getting to know the weather um trying to figure out where I can buy affordable organic food which isn't going so well over here so far. So I've just moved to Fremantle from being in Melbourne where we are really spoilt for cheap and affordable food and not having a garden here I do not like at all (laughs) because I'm so used to having half of my food provided from the garden in random and pleasurable ways. Yeah, that kind of stuff.
1: Mm Hmm yeah I like the idea
0: of meteorological literacy. and just, mm, that's a, that's a perfect term, yeah
1: yeah, you're so right. like this is this is what I find really challenging about Melbourne because it is you know that really stale joke about if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes, and it is really unpredictable. but I'm sure there are rhythms and patterns that I will be learning over time. And mm. I think there's also a reason we talk about the weather like it is inherently interesting and it is it does dictate our movements or at least our enjoyment as you say so I think that's a really beautiful um, avenue of exploration for people because I know I, I think a lot of we move so much and I move so much and that feeling of displacement is it's pretty constant so we can get to get to grips with the weather and feel a little more at home. Yes I never find conversations about
0: the weather dull in the way that they're purportedly <laughs> meant to be It is not conversation filler it's it's important I think my geography oh, teacher <laughs> my geography teacher at high school said weather makes landscape and landscape makes culture and that stuck with me because it's damn true and I will confess at the risk of offending all of my dar- darling Melbourneites that... Um, That has been been another incentive for my move is that having grown up here, I have missed for my whole two and a half decades in Melbourne, I have really missed the clarity of the seasons that have these really distinct flavours to them. And for that reason, part of my favourite weather in Melbourne is the angriest part of summer where you'll get just stinking hot heat waves followed by these storms and then a cool phase because at least it has this real rhythm and predictability to it that you can get stuck into it's like yeah i can get
1: my teeth into this (laughs) so you mentioned getting to know some of your local plants how did you get to know plants in the first place you wrote the weed foragers handbook in collaboration with adam Grubb. what where did the weeds love come from I can
0: pretty much give Adam Grubb direct credit for that in that I moved into a share house with him in my mid-20s and uh, he was just beginning to learn about some – he'd gotten a a really tiny little book um, that talked about edible weeds and he was just beginning to learn about a few things in the backyard and he said, let's try picking some of this and he cooked up this omelette that had a whole bunch of fat hen in it and I was like, that's delicious and there's like forests of it in the backyard and then I just started learning about the other plants and it was, I mean, I have seen this journey repeated for so many people is that once your eyes open to plants in that way, you see the landscape in a completely different way. It's all a surveying for food, um, which I think maybe our brains tip into that space so easily because it's really a big part of what they've been designed for for most of human history because it comes on really fast that your eyeballs just become this plant filtering laser picking out everything that's edible. Even when you're going quite fast, like riding a bike or going for a run or something, you'll be like, nice patch of mellow there, Mm, good dandelions there. And you you store all that information in your head really efficiently. so, yeah, then it just sort of became absurd to think of getting greens in some other way. Like really, would I go to the, to a shop and spend $4 on buying a lettuce that's wrapped in plastic and that has been trucked 200 kilometres and that I won't use all of before it goes slimy when I could just go into my backyard and snip off some chickweed? into my salads that's really seems like a much better deal for everyone for my wallet for my health because uh most weeds are a lot higher in nutrition than standard cultivated supermarket greens are and obviously ecologically because it's a food with zero environmental impact um which almost feels like something you shouldn't be able to say because we've we're so, if you're educated about food miles and so on, you get so used to the idea that to be a human living and eating, that you are doing damage on some level, which is an awful feeling when you have that awareness. And so there's something just, it's a balm to discover that there's food you can eat that has zero environmental impact. It was just growing there. I mean, homegrown veggies are great, don't get me wrong, but you still watered them and probably bought bags of fertiliser or manure that was moved around by petrol-powered machines and that was wrapped in some plastic. And Whereas the weed, it just grew itself and then you just ate some of it and then it grew some of itself back. <laughs> it's really, really clean. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty good... uh swat when i want to be so i got stuck into whatever books and resources were available and learnt more and more and did a little bit of experimentation um on good ways of cooking things and gradually made weeds a really big part of my diet as in they would supply basically all of my both fresh salad greens and cooking greens and lots of the herby kind of component as well
1: and yeah that happened <laughs> yeah I really think weeds need a rebrand because even just weed you know it's it's actually now I look at them as earth healers you know like mm. warriors going where no other plant will to to bring up the nutrients or cover the ground they're doing all these amazing services and you know i can understand an agricultural point of view and the problems that they can cause in that situation but i also feel like man we spend so much time battling weeds and they're actually trying to help yes <laughs> and um, and yeah when they pop up in my garden like i kind of cultivate them now so i'm seeing them all come up amongst the mizuna and tatsoi and i'm like yep that's that's my free my free salad that's like the the cream on the top and i'm just going to pick them and this is beefing up all the other things that i'm growing and so I don't know if there are some uh, some new words we can use for weeds or ways of celebrating them because, stems they're like so generous and giving.
0: Yeah. I mean, if there was some word that summarised almost the Red Cross of the plant kingdom, <laughs> yeah. that would be it. It's They go and they go, oh, this soil is too exposed or this slope keeps getting scoured by torrential rains and having all of its stability washed away. or. Um, This area is baked hot in sun and windswept and there's a weed that will grow in that place and start fixing the soil and making it habitable for other things. And that's just such a vital piece of ecological literacy that is missing from almost everyone's school educations, obviously, Um, that if that perception was part of how people thought of weeds and it really changes up
1: how you view them. Yeah, yeah. Did you blow your friends' minds feeding them weeds at various points in time?
0: Ah, I wanted to more than I did. I think most of my friends are so casual that everyone's into their own intense things of one kind or another. So it'd be like, oh, cool. Yeah, right. Weed salad. All right.
1: Bring it on. <laughs> yeah, you've got um, enlightened friends or just really relaxed friends. So- yeah. A good posse. Um, so when you were contemplating writing, which came first, The Frugal Hedonist? Um, or the Winfrored's Handbook. Okay. Yes. Was there a sense of intimidation around the writing process? Is that something you wanted to do for a really long time? No, there was no sense of intimidation, um, which is probably a bit peculiar.
0: I, I'm not sure why, but I haven't ever been prone to much of that questioning of, am I fit for this? It's sort of, if I feel like I've got the real impetus to do something and something that I want to say or show or share with people, then I know that I can probably manage it. Like that urge comes only after I've got so much that's already busting out that I think people want to know about that I can feel pretty confident that it's worth doing and that I can do it. Um, I know a lot of people have a lot more self-doubt than that and I'm blissfully free (laughs) of the stuff. Um, And it was, I mean, with both of those books, it's been a really clear thing of at no point before the first one did I think I want to be a writer, what should I write about? It was there's stuff here that people keep asking me about and that there's a patently a really strong desire for more information on and there's nothing out there that exists that's doing that job which is why people keep banging down my door to ask me about it um I'll tell people so it sort of came from that direction instead see I mean it's a pretty luxurious starting point to try and create anything is when when you have the sense that it's it's wanted and it's needed
1: I think that's actually the natural the the natural order of things and um, I get a bit uh, I I feel exasperated when there's this whole universe of like online courses and all of this marketing apparel that you can subscribe to online and I always think yeah but what are you actually selling like what is the meat of your offering (laughs) like just put this amazing sales pitch around it but like what's the thing (laughs) Yeah. So I, I think it's really beautiful that you're meeting a need and feeling a niche.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a much more satisfying way to do it. Although I have to confess that now I'm writing a novel that definitely no one has banged down my door to write. So, um, Ooh. can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, it's very fun to do. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I'm lying in when I said that I'd never wanted to be a writer because as a kid I think it was one of my ambitions because I knew that I loved writing um, and I've never stopped kind of writing not quite diaries but odd collage scrapbooks that have a uh, stream of consciousness or short stories or poems or rants or combinations of all of the above. At this point I think you'd pretty much call most of it creative nonfiction Um, and it's nice to finally have a term for what I've been writing all this time. Um, And so I have never really stopped writing in that way and I suppose after writing two nonfiction books, I was feeling the frustrations of having to bend language to a clear purpose all the time when I actually just adore language and using it in skew ways and fruity ways and painful ways and evocative ways and hyper-abundant ways and mean, pared-back, penny-pinching ways so much that I just want to get to use language for the sake of language so I went okay I get to write a novel now and it's uh I don't know if I should give the the premise away um it's based very loosely on the Hansel and Gretel story but set almost with semi-scientific writing peppered throughout it so it's a, a a realistic retelling of the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale but set in a an actual point in history and with a lot of, yeah, the way the couple of friends that have read it have described it have said that it's like reading science writing at the same time as reading a fairy tale. Um, Amazing. Which is sort of what I'm going for. So
1: it seems to be working. Yeah, and how did you cook up that idea? Did that just come to you or were you scratching around? For the, for no, it order?
0: came to me, yeah. I had been going to w- walk the Biberman Track, which is a two-month-long walk in western australia um and that was right as lockdown as as covid kicked off last year and i'd posted all my food parcels to collect at, at the small towns along the route and had packed my backpack and had flown to western australia and was set to get on the bus to take me down to the very bottom of western australia which is where then i was going to start walking all the way back up to perth um and the very day before I was due to catch that bus, lockdown started being implemented and they shut interregional travel in Western Australia. And then they said um, that you have to go back to Victoria right now or you possibly won't be able to get back there. And so I went back home and I was feeling really like I'd been looking forward to this massive intense thing this, you know, two-month-long physically grueling solitary challenge. It's something that you get quite psyched up for. And then I was listening to a history podcast that was talking about how volcanic eruptions had possibly, a string of tropical volcanic eruptions had possibly triggered a huge famine in the 14th century that lasted for about three years but killed – 40% of the population in lots of Northern Europe. And that cannibalism and infanticide had been part of the result of that famine because people were so desperate. And that then tied for me into the Hansel and Gretel story and I suddenly thought I want to write a novel where it comes from the point of the volcanic eruptions and how that precipitates this famine and how it leads to this story occurring. And so then I started (laughs) And so I did that through lots of lockdown and I'm just sort of finishing it up now.
1: Wow. What incredible timing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm really sad I didn't get to do
1: the walk, but I'm happy to have written a novel instead. Yeah. Well, actually, I actually have a friend who was doing that walk when COVID kicked off and oh. she actually got stuck for a long time and wow, had to wow. just keep walking. So, wow. <laughs> um, yeah. But she had an incredible experience, obviously, but I think that um, not being able to get home and just being living and living between, you know, IGAs in towns and um, yeah, yeah, it was a pretty pretty interesting. Time that would have been her. very intense, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, but it it makes me it makes me wonder. So you know, you've written, you've almost finished this book, and you carved out, you had carved out a couple of months to go and do this amazing walk. How do you orchestrate your life so that you you have this time to um, put towards the things that really matter to you?
0: Two years ago I would have said it's just because I'm very frugal and that means I can be really flexible about my work and I've always chosen to do a job slash jobs where even when i've been asked to become full-time or permanent staff i've always said no i just want to stay casual um so that i can choose my own hours a lot more i mean obviously you need to work around the employer's needs too but i've always chosen that and even in relation to the books i've often chosen to turn down requests to do stuff that will be a lot more involved like we've had several offers to make tv shows out of the art f- of frugal hedonism and each time it just hasn't even been a question it would be like that would be such a huge <laughs> enterprise and I've got too many other things that I want to do this year I just don't want to do something like that um and It really is keeping that flexibility has always been such a priority and I've been able to manage it because I don't spend very much money and I feel duty bound now to confess that that has become easier in the last two years because I sold the house that I had bought when I was really young in Melbourne with a very small inheritance but it enabled me to put a deposit and then I've just gradually been paying that off for the last 17 years. Um. And decided to sell that because I didn't want to have to manage a five-person share house anymore where I was also the landlady. Um, so now having that chunk of money behind me means that I can choose to be even more flexible if I want to. I haven't actually spent any of that money yet in the last two years, so I guess I am still living. Yeah, I mean, that boils down to the fact that I am still living on those flexible, casual-type wages but, it's, yeah, it's been a question of prioritising. It's also a question of not having kids. I'd probably feel a lot more beholden to a different schedule if I had kids, um, and I've chosen not to have a kid
1: for ecological reasons pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, it sounds like you've had some really clear a clear direction and or a clear sense of what you do and don't want, which can be a really murky space to navigate. And has that been, did you go through a process like we, we've we interviewed Dan Palmer and we know about holistic decision making and all these really groovy ways of getting clear on your core intention and building your values around that, etc. Is that something that you're prone to do? or No, just- it's always just been a, a gut feeling for me. Mm.
0: Um, I suppose I have sincerely always felt there is so much amazing stuff to do in the world that I, I don't want to choose unless I had a career that required me to be so intensely involved in it that I wanted to do it over and above all other things I'm not going to choose working over experiencing everything else that the world has to offer it just doesn't even seem like a competition to me I would so much rather be really stingy in in lots of the ways that other people aren't stingy, it's, it just seems like such a better deal. Um, and I guess some of that has kind of been confirmed for me lately. In that, um, as I mentioned to you off air before we started the interview, I've had a chronic health condition develop over the last decade, which is really, it's pretty extreme. It's very limiting in lots of ways these days, and it means that I am looking at a much more limited life, and it really confirms to me that I I find myself thinking, oh, my God, how angry would I be now if I suddenly was in this position where I was going, well, I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do that because of these health issues, and I hadn't lived such a full life to this point. I'd be so bitter if I'd just spent all of this time trying to save up money to have a better quality life later. Whereas, because my health now means that it's quite hard for me to travel easily and um, to move around easily, then because of, yeah, I won't go into the limitations, but dietary and massive allergies to all sorts of building materials and stuff that means I can't sort of go stay in random houses and. Uh, hotels or anything like that. Um, So, you know, overseas travel and sort of any kind of travel that's not camping is pretty much off the charts for me at this point, Um, as is travelling anywhere where there's fire or huge amounts of pollen or where I can't reliably get food that belongs to a quite limited list of foods. Um, So I am really looking at this life that's a lot more contained and Focused on a small number of things. And I don't feel too upset about that at the age of 43 because I have always done so much diverse and adventurous stuff that it feels like, okay, it's fine. It's fine to be a little bit more contained now. Um, And I suppose that's happening to me at an age where I've also got several older relatives who are getting the cancers as people do they get the cancers and seeing I mean it's it's a huge cliche but seeing the people amongst those people who haven't done what they would have liked to have done with their days feeling really regretful and not wanting to ever be one of those people um yeah I'd, I'd rather work less and not eat out and not buy new clothes and spend lots of my day at the beach which is what I'm currently doing <laughs> so my, my I mean since moving to western australia my days seriously seem to consist of something like get up at about 7 eat porridge go to the beach for 2 hours walk along the beach swim walk back from the beach make some food Sit in a park, eat the food, write for about four hours, go for another little walk to look at the sunset, do some more life admin, uh, talk to people on Skype, and read books. <laughs> That's an average day, and I look at it and go, "God, this is ridiculous." <laughs> yes, you're living like a, a uh, English aristocrat—the level of luxury that you expect to be built into your average day, Annie. <laughs>
1: I love that. It's so, it makes so much sense and it's so beautiful. And I feel like, you know, I, I have a little shades of that, um, no beach here in Melbourne, I'm afraid, but shades of that approach to life. And my partner and I are kind of doggedly <laughs> wedded to this idea that we don't want to be doing bullshit stuff and we're happy, you know, we're happy to work. And I feel like every minute of the day you're working at something, you know, whether that's blinking your eyes (laughs) or, um, you know, making a meal, but this is, this is the real work of life, but all this other, you know, bureaucratic stuff or like logistical things that don't really seem to contribute. I find really hard to give my, my love and attention to, and I want to be giving love to the things that I'm doing. And, and yet I think that it's so easy for people to level criticisms at. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm imagining it that people might think, "What are they? What are they even doing? What are they doing with their life? Like, <laughs> what are these? What are these criticisms? And do you think people are just um, better?" Or
0: no, you're not imagining them. Um, they're definitely there. I've, you know, I've run into them a few times, and uh, I think there's a mixture of and jealousy and just the sense of the most core values that people have been brought up with being rumpled in a way that is distressing for them. Um, But – and I used to actually feel a bit guilty about that stuff, especially right after I sold my house when I went, oh, my God, I've spent my whole life having just – so little money and now I've got this big lump of money I'm so privileged it's revolting Um, but then I thought well the option is to either keep trying to make more money so that I'm even more privileged or to continue being a really really low consumer and trying to spend my life energies being really good to people and producing work that I think is beautiful and makes the world better. Um, and I know which one of those sounds better. Is it Now it almost seems gross to me when people have something approaching enough money to leave a, lead a decent and low-consumer life on to keep trying to work more unless you think you're doing work that is clearly really good and important. Um, but to you know just keep trying to accrue more money by having work that's happening in a dubious space that you're not sure contributes to society but it's just based around the need for economic growth should really be questioned in my book <laughs> like it doesn't add up to a very good society when everyone's doing that yeah I mean I fight with that Protestant work ethic upbringing which says that to work is the honourable and good thing to do. But we are at an insane point in human history where we have to question everything like that in a pretty serious and fast way and the assumption that work should be the main purpose of life when most of that work is currently about producing industries and goods that are not always necessary it really it really does need to be questioned as a basic premise and if you can just consume a lot less then and to, and work a lot less that's really patently a better ecological contribution to the world and if it makes your own life better then I'm not going to make anyone feel guilty about that I mean in, in a way <laughs> My work that creates labor for me is some of the stuff involved in being a really low consumer and because that is partly what enables me to do less work, then it should be constituted as work in a way um, in that it's, uh, even if it's sometimes a pleasure, it isn't always a pleasure but sometimes it is, but so it's stuff like putting in the effort and work to walk everywhere and catch and ride bicycles everywhere um so that I don't have to own a car and sometimes that involves doing stuff like I've been doing since I've been here but going out when it's really hot or you're really tired or you've got a sore back and borrowing some furniture wheels from someone across the street to go haul dumped furniture from seven blocks away and you keep dropping it and it's falling off and you're having to put it back on the furniture trolley so that you've got secondhand scavenged furniture to furnish your new room with for in a town that you've just moved to. And that's work of a kind. Um, but it's also a thing that keeps me fit and is vaguely entertaining for the passing public who see me dropping furniture all over the street. <laughs> and that means I haven't consumed anything to then furnish that room. Um, and it's the weird work that most people want to do that I do, like finding strange things at the back of fridges of houses I'm staying in and cooking them all up into meals for the the family that I'm staying with while I'm looking for a house here so that it doesn't go to waste because they say oh no there's just a whole lot of rotten stuff at the back of the fridge and you go well I'm going to make us all dinner out of this because there's actually some good stuff in here let's not just chuck it all out it's all those weird kinds of work that actually add up to work that means that I'm not spending all that money
1: yeah, I love that reframe of seeing all of those those things which are so very vital for us to be pursuing right now as the work as well. And um, I was actually really surprised and horrified in a way when I was at Meliodora a few uh, months ago and David was saying, um, you know, it's not your political persuasion and it's yeah, it's not the way you vote and it's not your values and ethics that determine your footprint, it's your, your wealth, you know, your income. And I, I feel like there's a... You're right. It's probably the indoctrination that we have around being a good human, which is a human who, who does the thing and works super hard. But this is also problematic in terms of accumulating so much wealth that we we take the route of convenience, and that's such a human thing as well. You know, yeah. like I always joke that my my values are pretty much tied to a financial limitation that I might have so it's so convenient that it all lines up that I can be super frugal <laughs> yeah <laughs> because I think if I did have that option maybe I would be a grotesque consumer but I just don't have that option um well hello I'm a good test case for that in this I know. In well, This the, is
0: amazing. it is it has been interesting to me because when after being really poor all that time when I got that money from selling the house I thought am I about to discover that I don't actually believe in any of the things I thought I believed in? And it appears it is not even the tiniest bit true (laughs)
1: because as I said,
0: I haven't spent a cent of it yet. I've just kept doing exactly what I've always done. I think I did a few things like um, uh, bought myself a really good raincoat. Um, that (laughs) That was really good. And I've probably done a few more things since then, like um, pay for massages. I think, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, no, you're a perfect case study, and I love, I love this, um, this proof that we're getting that it, it, it can be done, and you can hold fast to those habits and routines that you've you've amassed over the years.
0: Yeah, well, they they serve me well, is the thing, and I believe in what they. I believe in the pattern of a society that they are part of uh, and I want to perpetuate that society that they are a part of, um, not as in the broader society that is creating all these opportunities for scavenging and waste but the practices <laughs> of a culture that, that does scavenge and um, use, use ends of things and offcuts of things. And forgotten
1: things, Mm -hmm. and what do you think? You know, you mentioned the uh, the cataclysmic kind of shift that we have to undertake together, collectively, to get this shit sorted. Mm -hmm. What are the kind of things that you would suggest, or that you would feel are important for people to do?
0: Uh, This is where you always get into the real risk of massively upsetting lots of people. Component is the first one that is more approachable I think is because it's so laces through all of our culture and how we interact is our approach to food. Um, I think, I mean, number one food actually it counts, the food we consume accounts for an enormous part of our carbon footprints. I think it's 40% last time I looked. Um, so it is actually substantial um, and the fact that we waste 40% of the food we buy is it's straight away that we can halve half of our carbon footprints if you take my meaning, 40% of 40%, not quite half. but. Um, and I think uh, mindset around food being valuable and something that should not be wasted really it creates those structures within our brains that think about preciousness and waste a lot better and, um, because once any time you let half a loaf of bread go off, you start thinking of that as, oh, well, that half a loaf of bread represents X hundred litres of water in growing that wheat or, and X litres of petrol in the, the trucking of that bread and in the manufacture of the plastic bag that it came in. Um, once you start to – think about the embedded precious resources in all the food that you eat. It's really mind blowing and it makes you very feel very compelled to treat every bit of it as if it's really valuable and come up with strategies to how you cook and buy food and produce food that involves zero waste. Like I I really cannot remember the last time I threw out a single piece of edible food and that hasn't actually been that hard uh, it's just how I treat food it's it's precious I wouldn't do that um but that then it does start to extend we've got a chapter in the book where we talk about looking around the things in your room and being amazed and appreciative of what's gone into every one of them like that that Uh, chair that you're sitting on has got plastic nubs on the end of its legs that have been extruded from melted down petrochemical products that were pulled from the center of the earth and were moved 10,000 miles from China to get to you and You don't then just think of that as another piece of shit that should be dumped on the street, even if it's a slightly crummy chair that's not as fashionable as the chair you might like. If it works well, you go, that is an amazing item to own and for humans to have produced. And if I put myself in the context of a human being in 1300, I would look at that chair and go, wow, I am proud to have that. (laughs) I've done pretty well for myself you wouldn't just be thinking oh that chair's got a you know a bit of a stain on the seat oh, i should get another one and what will people think of me um, and so yeah it's about thinking about the embedded resources in all of the products that we have from food and other that i think just has to be part of how we view them and that's a really big cognitive shift that both is changing of people both has the power to change people's behavior around consumables but also to make us more amazed and thrilled by what we have because it really is quite exciting when you stop and think about it, about the riches that you contain in your average household. Um, Another one as a big shift definitely has to be around having kids is that the guilt that exists for lots of people at the idea of not having kids, we just got to get over that. We really do. Um, and about not giving a child a brother or sister to keep the other one company, once you have a society that revolves around lots of people just having one kid, you develop different structures where playdates and so on become so much a part of how society works because it's just more convenient and makes more sense and keeps the kids busy, that I don't think that whole you need another one to keep them company thing should be Part of the social norm because unfortunately, as Westerners, every child we have is about the biggest carbon footprint that we're going to produce in our whole life. And if you don't want to have kids, if you're not really sure that you want them, don't have them. We don't need any more human beings as wonderful as yours would probably be. There's always going to be lots of other wonderful ones, and invest some of your loving mentoring nurturing energy in the kids that are around you and other people's kids and helping to babysit them and so on if you have a dying desire to be a parent then yeah have have a kid but if you're not sure then really stop and think about it pretty hard don't just do it because it's the social pressure because we have reached a point in history where we can't just keep having children because it's expected that would be crazy to do at this point in history um we're at a tipping point where it's a, it's a novel time where the rules are now different and having children being the norm can no longer be part of the accepted status quo. Um, then driving would be the third thing that I'd nominate straight away, which is treating cars as if they're, the primary way to get somewhere needs to be questioned really violently by anyone who hasn't got mobility issues. Um, There needs to be possibly uh, changes in legislation to assist that, but I don't think that's going to happen. So the question that we actually encourage people to ask in the book around their car use is if you had to go hire a car to do this, would you still do it? Would you go through the effort of making an online booking or whatever, going to the street where you have to, the depot where you have to pick up the car from and hiring the car and then returning that? Because if you wouldn't go hire a car for it, you should probably figure out some other way to do it. So, you know, if you need to move some furniture or if you need to buy a whole bunch of really – Heavy stuff, or you're, you know, stocking your pantry for the first time in a new house, or you're um, going on a trip somewhere for the weekend, or you've got an event where you have to move 20 kids and a bunch of party supplies. Yeah, you'd probably say, Yes, I'm going to go hire the car for that if you didn't have one. But if it's just to go to the shops, then you wouldn't bother. Mm-hmm. So it's a good, it's a good sort of reality check. There. Yeah.
1: Well, I feel like I can. Has it a guess that your idea of what makes a successful human being and life isn't going to fit the conventional kids' mortgage suit, um, (laughs) all of those kind of trimmings, what would you look back on your life and say, hey, I did a pretty good job? Like what would that, what is your version of success?
0: Um, Being very interested in things. And not letting myself be scared either of falling in love or hitchhiking or jumping into really cold water (laughs) or writing a book when you've never written one before, Um, those kind of fears. And... recognizing that uh, good times with human beings is not something to be lazy about. Um, it also comes up with the hitchhiking actually in that you're thrown, unless you're just going to stay in a little bubble, you're constantly thrown in life to into company with a broad range of people and of all different kinds of values and mindsets, and I think people often have the assumption that that good human interaction should just flow and bubble up and be easy. Whereas, I'm quite proud of the fact that I've definitely learnt that you can work. You have it's a generosity um, to work kind of hard to draw people out in the ways that makes them feel most like they're sharing something that's worthwhile and to give something of yourself that might contribute to them and I think they before we had so much instantly gratifying media to keep us entertained we we had a bit more of a practice of both being good storytellers and uh being good conversationalists and that was sort of almost a skill that you would cultivate and I don't think it's something that we're really taught to cultivate that much anymore and I'm proud that I feel like I have worked at that a bit over my life to figure out how to talk to lots of different people and turn it into a good time. Um, and remaining sensual, I suppose, is also something that I value and, being, and I'm proud of because the sensory universe is just like it's something that you can be a glutton in in so many different ways and why not (laughs) like it's just a
1: good time (laughs) ending on gluttony is is my perfect outro thank you so much for sharing with us today and it's been such a delight annie thank you my pleasure thank you katie That was Annie Racer-Rowland and we'll link to all her amazing offerings in the show notes. Thanks so much to the sound gods at Open Door Studios in Beechworth for producing and editing this episode and responding to our 10pm questions with grace. We love you guys. And meet you back here next Monday at 6am for a future setting convo with someone good. See you then.